This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history. And everything in between, including your story, send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorite. And today we have a story from Chicken Soup for the Soul, Life Lessons from the Cat Book, which can be found on Amazon.com. This story is entitled The Cat No One Wanted, and it was read to us by Renee Vaco Search. Here's the story. I was hesitant when my niece called to ask if I would foster a pair of cats until she could find homes for them. My husband and I had already adopted several strays and felt we had reached our limit. Although we live in the country where there's plenty of room for our cats to roam, there are still quite a few costs involved in caring for pets. I found them in the hollow of a tree at the campground, my niece told me. They're both declawed. Immediately I was swayed. Most cats can't survive in the wild without claws. They need them to hunt for food and defend themselves against predators. After consulting with my husband, we agreed to keep them temporarily. When my niece showed up with two long-haired calicos, we were shocked to see how emaciated they were. At first they were both skittish, but the male cat soon realized he was in a safe place and overcame his fear. The female cat, on the other hand, dashed down the hall and disappeared into our son Benjamin's room, huddling against the far wall under his bed. My husband named the male Sam and the female Hal, an acrostic for hides a lot. Though identical in appearance, Sam and Hal's personalities were as opposite as night and day. Sam was playful, curious, and affectionate. Hal was fearful, cautious, and aloof. We placed posters on the vet's bulletin board. Within days, Sam found a wonderful home. Hal, on the other hand, wouldn't venture out from under Benjamin's bed other than to eat, drink, and use the litter box. No one wanted to adopt the sullen cat. After almost a week, Hal finally ventured out to nap on Benjamin's bed while he was at school. But as soon as my husband or I entered our son's room, she would dash back under the bed. Gradually, she began to sleep with Benjamin, curled up next to his pillow, near enough to sense his presence, but not close enough to touch. Almost two weeks after Hal arrived, Benjamin experienced a full-blown meltdown. Our son has high-functioning autism, also known as Asperger's. When his sensory issues trigger a meltdown, he goes to his room, lies on his bed, and covers himself with his favorite cat blanket to block out all sensory input. Unfortunately, it still takes a while for him to calm down. Although he'd slammed his bedroom door, we could still hear him ranting about the unfairness of life. I was about to enter his room to check on him when his tirade stopped suddenly. It was as if someone had flipped a switch. Ear pressed to the door, I heard nothing but silence. Carefully, I opened his bedroom door and peered in. Hal was lying on the bank blanket covering Benjamin. Our son's breathing was slow and regular. Spent after his meltdown, Benjamin had fallen asleep with the cat resting on his chest. 
Over the next few weeks, we witnessed the same phenomenon happen every time Benjamin spiraled into a meltdown. As soon as he lay down in bed and covered himself with his blanket, Hal would settle on his chest, and within seconds, Benjamin would transition from agitation to complete calm. My husband and I had read about weighted blankets, which often help individuals with autism to relax and calm down. Now it seemed that cat was providing the same type of effect. It soon grew quite apparent that Hal had come into our lives for a reason. The frightened, aloof cat has developed an unusual bond with Benjamin. She seems to sense his special needs and appears to have her own sensory issues to boot. She doesn't like to be touched, hates loud noises, and favors solitude over boisterous games with the other cats in our house. But none of that matters to Benjamin because he shares the same sensory issues. Benjamin and Hal are best friends. When she's not eating or taking a walk around the garden, you will find Hal napping on Benjamin's bed, curled up beside his pillow, or lying on his chest when he's feeling stressed. The cat no one wanted has blessed us beyond expectations. We gave her a home, but she has given our special son so much more. And a great job, as always, by Faith, and thanks to Renee Vaco Search for her reading of The Cat No One Wanted from the book Life Lessons from the Cat Book from the Chicken Soup for the Soul, folks, and you can find it at Amazon.com. Renee Vaco Search's story, her cat Hal's story, and her son Benjamin's story here on Our American Stories. And now it's time for a special short and recurring feature here on Our American Stories. It's time for Lindsay Marie and her Why Minute. I'm Lindsay Marie, and you're listening to The Why Minutes. You know, there's just something about cruising down the open road, windows down, music up, that just makes you feel so free. That is, until you see those red and blue lights in the rearview mirror. Your stomach sinks and your heart skips a beat. You know you're going a little fast, but you weren't being reckless. Regardless, you still end up with that $300 ticket, a not-so-gentle reminder that freedom has restrictions, even on the open road. But it's all in the name of keeping us safe, right? Well, not always. You see, back in the 70s, there was an oil shortage, and the government was looking for ways to conserve oil, but ultimately drive the price down. So, they set their eyes on our country's interstates. They limited speeds to 55 miles per hour because, as it turns out, the faster you go, the more oil you burn. The idea was that by limiting the speed, the demand for oil would be lower, ultimately making the price go down. But a lot has changed since the law was repealed in 95. Cars are designed safer, faster, and way more fuel efficient. But have you noticed what hasn't changed much with technology? The speed limit. What was once used to save us money is now used to take our money. The why minutes, because why matters.
This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about all kinds of things here on this show. And we love spending time on music, arts, and literature. Jack London's most famous works include The Call of the Wild and White Fang, both set in the Klondike Gold Rush, as well as his short story, To Build a Fire. Here's Greg Hengler with more on Jack London. Jack London carved out his own hard scrabble life as a teen. In his free time, he hunkered down at libraries, soaking up novels and travel books. His life as a writer essentially began in 1893. That year, he had weathered a treacherous voyage, one in which a typhoon had nearly taken out London and his crew. The 17-year-old adventurer had made it home and regaled his mother with his tales of what happened to him. When she saw an announcement in one of the local newspapers for a writing contest, she pushed her son to write down and submit his story. Armed with just an 8th grade education, London captured the $25 first prize, beating out college students from Berkeley and Stanford. For London, the contest was an eye-opening experience, and he decided to dedicate his life to writing short stories. But he had trouble finding willing publishers. In fact, Jack London kept all of his rejection letters from the first five years of his writing career and impaled each one of them on a spindle. The impaled letters, 600 of them, eventually reached a height of four feet. When White Fang was first published in 1906, Jack London was well on his way to becoming one of the most famous, popular, and highly paid writers in the world. In fact, London was the first author in the world to become a millionaire from his writing. He died at his California ranch on November 22, 1916. He was 40 years old. To Build a Fire takes place in the snowy world of the Yukon, where it's so cold your spit freezes before it even hits the ground. After spending a very influential part of his young life mining for gold in the Arctic North, London returned to the States a changed man. He was certain that civilization and its modern conveniences had turned everyone, and men in particular, into a bunch of wimps, and he felt that people needed to reconnect with their natural instincts and common sense if they wished to remain strong against the pampering forces of the modern world. Here to narrate the gripping finale of Jack London's masterpiece, to build a fire is Roger McGrath. McGrath is the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, Violence on the Frontier. A U.S. Marine and former history professor at UCLA, Dr. McGrath has appeared on numerous History Channel documentaries and is a regular contributor here for us at Our American Stories. It is 75 below zero. A man must not fail in his first attempt to build a fire. That is, if his feet are wet, 
If his feet are dry and he fails, he can run along the trail for half a mile and restore his circulation. But the circulation of wet and freezing feet cannot be restored by running when it is 75 below. No matter how fast he runs, the wet feet will freeze the harder. All this the man knew. The old-timer on Sulphur Creek had told him about it the previous fall, and now he was appreciating the advice. Already all sensation had gone out of his feet. To build the fire, he had been forced to remove his mittens, and the fingers had quickly gone numb. His pace of four miles an hour had kept his heart pumping blood to the surface of his body and to all the extremities. But the instant he stopped, the action of the pump eased down. The cold of space smote the unprotected tip of the planet, and he, being on that unprotected tip, received the full force of the blow. The blood of his body recoiled before it. The blood was alive, like the dog, and like the dog it wanted to hide away and cover itself from the fearful cold. So long as he walked four miles an hour, he pumped that blood willy-nilly to the surface. But now it ebbed away and sank into the recesses of his body. The extremities were the first to feel its absence. His wet feet froze the faster, and his exposed fingers numbed the faster, though they had not yet begun to freeze. Nose and cheeks were already freezing while the skin of all his body chilled as it lost its blood. But he was safe. Toes and nose and cheeks would only be touched by the frost, for the fire was beginning to burn with strength. He was feeding it with twigs the size of his finger. In another minute, he would be able to feed it with branches the size of his wrist, and then he could remove his wet footgear, and while it dried, he could keep his naked feet warm by the fire, rubbing them at first, of course, with snow. The fire was a success. He was safe. He remembered the advice of the old timer on Sulphur Creek and smiled. The old timer had been very serious in laying down the law that no man must travel alone in the Klondike after fifty below. Well, here he was. He had had the accident. He was alone and he had saved himself. Those old timers were rather womanish, some of them, he thought. All a man had to do was keep his head, and he was all right. Any man who was a man could travel alone. But it was surprising, the rapidity with which his cheeks and nose were freezing. And he had not thought his fingers could go lifeless in so short a time. Lifeless they were for he could scarcely make them move together to grip a twig, and they seemed remote from his body and from him. When he touched a twig, he had to look and see whether or not he had hold of it. The wires were pretty well down between him and his finger ends, all of which counted for little. There was the fire snapping and crackling and promising life with every dancing flame. He started to untie his moccasins. They were coated with ice. The thick German socks were like sheaths of iron halfway up to his knee. 
and the moccasin strings were like rods of steel, all twisted and knotted as by some conflagration. For a moment, he tugged his numb fingers. Then, realizing the folly of it, he drew his sheath knife. But before he could cut the strings, it happened. It was his own fault, or rather, his mistake. He should not have built the fire under the spruce tree. He should have built it in the open. But it had been easier to pull the twigs from the brush and drop them directly on the fire. Now the tree, under which he had done this, carried a weight of snow on its boughs. No wind had blown for weeks, and each bough was fully freighted. Each time he pulled a twig, it communicated a slight agitation to the tree, an imperceptible agitation, so far as he was concerned, but an agitation sufficient to bring about the disaster. High up in the tree, one bough capsized its load of snow. This fell on the boughs beneath, capsizing them. This process continued, spreading out and involving the whole tree. It grew like an avalanche, and it descended without warning upon the man in the fire, and the fire was blotted out. Where it had burned was a mantle of fresh and disordered snow. The man was shocked. It was as though he had just heard his own sentence of death. For a moment he sat and stared at the spot where the fire had been. Then he grew very calm. Perhaps the old timer on Sulphur Creek was right. If he had only had a trail mate, he would have been in no danger now. A trail mate could have built the fire. And we're listening to Roger McGrath, our in-house historian on all things frontier. Reading Jack London's Remarkable to Build a Fire. And when we come back, we're going to hear more of this story, my favorite, and so many people's around the world. Jack London, the first millionaire writer in history, and who had faced lots of rejection. His story continues here on Our American Stories. And we continue here with Our American Stories and Roger McGrath's reading of To Build a Fire. Let's pick up where we last left off. Well, it was up to him to build the fire over again. And the second time, there must be no failure. Even if he succeeded, he would most likely lose some toes. His feet must be badly frozen by now. And there would be some time before the second fire was ready. Such were his thoughts, but he did not sit and think them. He was busy all the time they were passing through his mind. He made a new foundation for a fire, this time in the open, where no treacherous tree could blot it out. Next, he gathered dry grasses and tiny twigs from the high-water flotsam. He could not bring his fingers together to pull them out, but he was able to gather them by the handful. 
in this way. He got many rotten twigs and bits of green moss that were undesirable, but it was the best he could do. He worked methodically, even collecting an armful of the larger branches to be used later when the fire gathered strength. And all the while, the dog sat and watched him, a certain yearning wistfulness in its eyes, for it looked upon him as the fire provider, and the fire was slow in coming. When all was ready, the man reached in his pocket for a second piece of birch bark. He knew the bark was there, and though he could not feel it with his fingers, he could hear its crisp rustling as he fumbled for it. Try as he would, he could not clutch hold of it. And all the time in his consciousness was the knowledge that each instant his feet were freezing. This thought tended to put him in a panic, but he fought against it and kept calm. He pulled on his mittens with his teeth and thrust his arms back and forth, beating his hands with all his might against his sides. He did this sitting down, and he stood up to do it. And all the while the dog sat in the snow, its wolf brush of a tail curled warmly over its forefeet, its sharp wolf ears pricked forward intently as it watched the man. And the man, as he beat and threshed his arms and hands, felt a great surge of envy as he regarded the creature that was warm and secure in its natural covering. After a time, he was aware of the first faraway signals of sensation in his beaten fingers. The faint tingling grew stronger till it evolved into a stinging ache that was excruciating, but which the man hailed with satisfaction. He stripped the mitten from his right hand and fetched forth the birch bark. The exposed fingers were quickly going numb again. Next, he brought out his bunch of sulfur matches, but the tremendous cold had already driven the life out of his fingers. In his effort to separate one match from the others, the whole bunch fell in the snow. He tried to pick it out of the snow, but failed. The dead fingers could neither touch nor clutch. He was very careful. He drove the thought of his freezing feet and nose and cheeks out of his mind, devoting his whole soul to the matches. He watched, using the sense of vision in place of that of touch, and when he saw his fingers on each side of the bunch, he closed them. That is, he willed to close them. For the wires were down, and the fingers did not obey. He pulled the mitten on his right hand and beat it fiercely against his knee. Then, with both mittened hands, he scooped the bunch of matches, along with much snow, into his lap. Yet, he was no better off. After some manipulation, he managed to get the bunch between the heels of his mittened hands. In this fashion, he carried it to his mouth. The ice crackled and snapped when by a violent effort he opened his mouth. He drew the lower jaw in, curled the upper lip out of the way, and scraped the bunch with his upper teeth in order to separate a match. He succeeded in getting one, which he dropped on his lap. He was no better off. He could not pick it up. Then he devised a way. He picked it up in his teeth and scratched it on his leg. Twenty times he scratched before he succeeded in lighting it.
As it flamed, he held it with his teeth to the birch bark. But the burning brimstone went up his nostrils and into his lungs, causing him to cough spasmodically. The match fell into the snow and went out. The old timer on Sulphur Creek was right, he thought in the moment of control of the spear that ensued. After fifty below, a man should travel with a partner. He beat his hands, but failed in exciting any sensation. Suddenly he bared both hands, removing the mittens with his teeth. He caught the whole bunch between the heels of his hands. His arm muscles, not being frozen, enabled him to press the hand heels tightly against the matches. Then he scratched the bunch along his leg. It flared into flame. Seventy sulfur matches at once. There was no wind to blow them out. He kept his head to one side to escape the strangling fumes and held the blazing bunch to the birch bark. As he so held it, he became aware of sensation in his hand. His flesh was burning. He could smell it. Deep down below the surface, he could feel it. The sensation developed in a pain that grew acute, and still he endured it, holding the flame of matches clumsily to the bark that would not light readily because his own burning hands were in the way, absorbing most of the flame. At last, when he could endure no more, he jerked his hands apart. The blazing matches fell sizzling into the snow, but the birch bark was alight. He began laying dry grasses and the tiniest twigs on the flame. He could not pick and choose, for he had to lift the fuel between the heels of his hands. Small pieces of rotten wood and green moss clung to the twigs, and he bit them off as well as he could with his teeth. He cherished the flame carefully and awkwardly. It meant life, and it must not perish. The withdrawal of blood from the surface of his body now made him begin to shiver, and he grew more awkward. A large piece of green moss fell squarely on the little fire. He tried to poke it out with his fingers, but his shivering frame made him poke too far, and he disrupted the little nucleus of the little fire. The burning grasses and tiny twigs separated and scattering. He tried to poke them together again, but in spite of the tenseness of his effort, his shivering got away with him, and the twigs were hopelessly scattered. Each twig gushed a puff of smoke and went out. The fire provider had failed. As he looked apathetically about him, his eyes chanced on the dog, sitting across the ruins of the fire from him, in the snow, making restless, hunching movements, slightly lifting one forefoot and then the other, shifting its weight back and forth on them with wistful eagerness. The sight of the dog put a wild idea into his head. He remembered the tale of a man caught in a blizzard who killed a steer and crawled inside the carcass and so was saved. He would kill the dog and bury his hands in the warm body until the numbness went out of them. Then he could build another fire. And you've been listening to Dr. Roger McGrath and telling the story of To Build a Fire, Jack London's classic. 
And we like to do this periodically because these stories, well, they must live on and they've been sort of almost eviscerated from the curriculum of most schools. When we come back, we continue with Jack London's To Build a Fire, the final installment here on Our American Story. And we continue with our American stories in the final installment of Jack London's To Build a Fire. Let's return to Dr. Roger McGrath. He spoke to the dog, calling it to him. But in his voice was a strange note of fear that frightened the animal, who had never known the man to speak in such way before. Something was the matter. And its suspicious nature sensed danger. It knew not what danger, but somewhere, somehow, in its brain arose an apprehension of the man. It flattened its ears down at the sound of the man's voice, and its restless, hunching movements, and the liftings and shiftings of its forefeet became more pronounced. But it would not come to the man. He got on his hands and knees and crawled toward the dog. This unusual posture again excited suspicion, and the animal sidled mincingly away. The man sat up in the snow for a moment and struggled for calmness. Then he pulled on his mittens by means of his teeth and got upon his feet. He glanced down at first in order to assure himself that he was really standing up for the absence of sensation in his feet left him unrelated to the earth. His erect position in itself started to drive the webs of suspicion from the dog's mind. And when he spoke peremptorily with the sound of whiplashes in his voice, the dog rendered its customary allegiance and came to him. As it came within reaching distance, the man lost control. His arms flashed out to the dog, and he experienced genuine surprise when he discovered that his hands could not clutch, that there was neither bend nor feeling in his fingers. He had forgotten for the moment that they were frozen, and that they were freezing more and more. All this happened quickly, and before the animal could get away, he encircled its body with his arms. He sat down in the snow, and in this fashion held the dog while it snarled and whined and struggled. But it was all he could do, hold its body encircled in his arms and sit there. He realized he could not kill the dog. There was no way to do it. With his helpless hands, he could neither draw nor hold his sheath knife nor throttle the animal. He released it, and it plunged wildly away with tail between its legs and still snarling. It halted 40 feet away and surveyed him curiously, with ears sharply pricked forward. The man looked down at his hands in order to locate them, and found them hanging on the ends of his arms. It 
struck him as curious that no one should have to use his eyes in order to find out where his hands were. He began threshing his arms back and forth, beating the mittened hands against his sides. He did this for five minutes, violently, and his heart pumped enough blood to the surface to put a stop to his shivering. But no sensation was aroused in his hands. He had an impression that they were hung like weights on the ends of his arms. But when he tried to run the impression down, he could not find it. A certain fear of death, dull and oppressive, came to him. This fear quickly became poignant as he realized that it was no longer a mere matter of freezing his fingers and toes or of losing his hands and feet, but that it was a matter of life and death with the chances against him. This threw him into a panic, and he turned and ran up the creek bed along the old dim trail. The dog joined in behind and kept up with him. He ran blindly, without intention, in fear such as he had never known in his life. Slowly, as he plowed and floundered through the snow, he began to see things again. The banks of the creek, the old timber jams, the leafless aspens, and the sky. The running made him feel better. He did not shiver. Maybe if he ran on, his feet would thaw out. And anyway, if he ran far enough, he would reach camp and the boys. Without doubt, he would lose some fingers and toes and some of his face. But the boys would take care of him and save the rest of him when he got there. And at the same time, there was another thought in his mind that said he would never get to the camp and the boys that it was too many miles away, that the freezing had too great a start on him, and that he would soon be stiff and dead. This thought he kept in the background and refused to consider. Sometimes it pushed itself forward and demanded to be heard, but he thrust it back and strove to think of other things. It struck him as curious that he could run at all on feet so frozen that he could not feel them when they struck the earth and took the weight of his body. He seemed to himself to skim above the surface and have no connection with the earth. Somewhere he had once seen a winged Mercury, and he wondered if Mercury felt as he felt when skimming over the earth. His theory of running until he reached camp and the boys had one flaw in it. He lacked endurance. Several times he stumbled, and finally he tottered, crumpled up, and fell. When he tried to rise, he failed. He must sit and rest, he decided, and next time he would merely walk and keep on going. As he sat and regained his breath, he noted that he was feeling quite warm and comfortable. He was not shivering, and it even seemed that a warm glow had come to his chest and trunk, and yet when he touched his nose or cheeks, there was no sensation. Runny would not thaw them out, nor would it thaw out his hands and feet. Then the thought came to him that the frozen portions of his body must be extending. He tried to keep the thought down, to forget it, to think of something else. He was aware of the panicky feeling that it caused, and he was afraid of the panic. But the thought asserted itself and persisted until it produced a vision of his body totally frozen. This was too much, and he made another wild run along the trail. Once he slowed down to walk, but the thought of the freezing extending itself 
made him run again. And all the time the dog ran with him at his heels. When he fell down a second time, it curled its tail over its forefeet and sat in front of him, facing him, curiously eager and intent. The warmth and security of the animal angered him, and he cursed it till it flattened down its ears appeasingly. This time the shivering came more quickly upon the man. He was losing his battle with the frost. It was creeping into his body from all sides. The thought of it drove him on, but he ran no more than a hundred feet when he staggered and pitched headlong. It was his last panic. When he had recovered his breath and control, he sat up and entertained in his mind the conception of meeting death with dignity. However, the conception did not come to him in such terms. His idea of it was that he had been making a fool of himself, running around like a chicken with its head cut off. Such was the simile that occurred to him. Well, he was bound to freeze anyway, and he might as well take it decently. With this newfound peace of mind came the first glimmerings of drowsiness. A good idea, he thought, to sleep off to death. It was like taking an anesthetic. Freezing was not so bad as people thought. There were lots worse ways to die. He pictured the boys finding his body next day. Suddenly he found himself with them, coming along the trail and looking for himself. And still with them, he came around a turn in the trail and found himself lying in the snow. He did not belong with himself anymore, for even then he was out of himself, standing with the boys and looking at himself in the snow. It certainly was cold, was his thought. When he got back to the States, he could tell the folks what real cold was. He drifted on from this to a vision of the old-timer on Sulphur Creek. He could see him quite clearly, warm and comfortable, and smoking a pipe. You were right, old hoss. You were right. A man mumbled to the old-timer of Sulphur Creek. Then the man drowsed off into what seemed to him the most comfortable and satisfying sleep he had ever known. The dog sat facing him and waiting. The brief day drew to a close in a long, slow twilight. There were no signs of a fire to be made, and besides, never in the dog's experience had it known a man to sit like that in the snow and make no fire. As the twilight drew on, its eager yearning for the fire mastered it, and with a great lifting and shifting of forefeet, it whined softly, then flattened its ears down in anticipation of being chided by the man. But the man remained silent. Later, the dog whined loudly, and still later, it crept close to the man and caught the scent of death. This made the animal bristle and back away. A little longer it delayed, howling under the stars that leaped and danced and shone brightly in the cold sky. Then it turned and trotted up the trail in the direction of the camp it knew. Where were the other food providers and fire providers? What storytelling and what writing, and we thank Dr. Roger McGrath for reading to Build a Fire by Jack London. No one should have to use his eyes to find out where his hands are. Who writes like that? 
It's so stark, it's so simple. A world opened up to all of us. Man versus nature. Nature wins. And that last vision, seeing that old timer in Sulphur Creek would warned him, don't go up there by yourself. And this rugged guy shrugging that off. What kind of a man needs another man? Well, it turns out this one did. Jack London's To Build a Fire, here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we bring you stories about, well, just about everything, from the arts to sports, from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And now we bring you our Women of True Grit series. Our friend Edie Hand has come across many women whose stories of hardship, character, and perseverance caused her to write a book called Women of True Grit. Now Edie is bringing some of those women along with many others to our airwaves. Today, Edie brings us the story of Mary Sparks, a tale of faith and family as told by her son Sparky. Here's Edie. Mary Sparks exhibited strength of conviction throughout her life. But oddly enough, it all started with an affair a stolen baby, and her Catholic faith. Here's her son Sparky to recount his mother's tale. I guess the time to start this story is in 1943. My mother fell in love with a married man who was about to ship off to the war. Mary couldn't bear the idea of losing her love, so she attempted to join the Women's Army Corps, a wax for short. And when she joined the WAC, she took her physical and found out she was pregnant. My grandfather, great Polish gentleman, he shipped her to Chicago to a home for unwed mothers where she worked like a dog for several months and then had my sister. My sister, who always made fun of me growing up and told me I was adopted. My grandmother took the train from Terre Haute, Indiana to Chicago to pick up my mother, who had just had this child. And my mother had been very weak and very, really, I, I think she, they, were, they abused her from the standpoint of making her cook and clean for other people in this home. So my mother and grandmother had put my sister up for adoption. And the people were supposed to be there that afternoon to pick up my sister. But on the way to the train station, neither could shake the feeling that something just wasn't right. And my mother said, I can't give up this baby. I just can't do it. And my grandmother said, well, 
your father is not going to let us come home with a baby. We have to give up this child. And my mother said, do you want to give up the child? And my grandmother said, no, I don't want to. And my grandmother, who didn't speak English very well, Polish was her first language, told the cab driver to turn around when they got to the train station. And they went back to this home, walked in the door. The people who were adopting my sister were there to pick her up. And my mother just went in, grabbed my sister, and she and my grandmother ran down the steps back into the cab and fired off toward the train station. My grandmother, as they were running out, grabbed all the paperwork she could get a hold of with both hands and held it into her. And then they sorted it out on the train and, and destroyed it. But then they had Sparky's grandfather, Mary's father, to deal with. But that wouldn't be much of a problem. So then they got home to Terre Haute. My grandmama just told him he was just going to have to get used to it. A year or two later, a World War II prisoner of war returned home to Indiana and began courting Mary. But she felt like she had to hide her child out of shame. There's several stories of her hiding my sister from him when he would come pick her up for a date. My, my grandmother and grandfather ran a uh, boarding house. And while that provided useful cover for a while, it only had to fail once for the gig to be up. After they got serious and they started dating, my dad came in one day unannounced and there was my sister in a playpen. And my dad said, who is this baby? And my mother started crying and said, this is my child. And my dad said, well, Who's the father? And my mother said, he has gone away. My dad looked down at her and said, well, this child needs a father. So I guess we need to get married, Mary. And that's how he proposed to mom. My sister found out all of this because this was a big secret in our family. We didn't know this story until my sister, when she was about 22, tried to get a passport. And she said, I was born in Terre Haute, Indiana. And they told her, called her back the next day and said, Miss Bauer, you were born in Chicago. What? You were born at a uh, home for unwed mothers. And my, my sister, who had tormented me all my life, telling me I was adopted. Uh, we, you know, and then we started finding out all this story. I always thought that my sister was treated a little bit differently than the other kids. And both, all the brothers and sisters on the Sparks side of the family, 11 of them, and all the brothers and sisters on the Cummins, which is, they had Americanized from Kaminsky uh, side of the family, uh, kept this a secret from all us kids. Growing up, nobody knew. And nobody needed to know. His parents didn't want any undue attention. And more than that, his father wanted his sister Sharon to have a loving home, full of love, conviction, and grief. 
and more of this remarkable story, an amazing love story. Our Women of True Grit series continues Mary Sparks' story after these messages. And we're back with Our American Stories and our Women of True Grit series and Mary Sparks' story. Her boyfriend, when he found out that her daughter, born out of wedlock, didn't have a father, proposed on the spot and raised the daughter as his own. Now we bring you the rest of Mary's story of faith and family, told again by her son, Sparky. Here's Edie. The Sparks family had no shortage of children, Seven, to be exact. And as good Catholics, you'd expect that. Mary and Jesse did their best to raise their kids well, with faith and family at the heart of all they did. But in 1973, that all would be put to the test. I was a student at uh, the University of Alabama. It was on a, uh, a Thursday morning in the spring. I get a call from my mother and my mother said, I need you home. And I said, well, okay, uh, spring break is in a couple of months and I'm planning on coming home to the farm. And she said, no, I need you home today. I said, what's going on? Is dad okay? Your father's fine, and uh, I need you home. And I said, Mama, I've got a test tomorrow, Friday. I said, I've got a test. She said, tell your professor that you've got a family emergency and you need to come home. I need you to be with me for a few days. Are you sick? No. And Dad's okay? Yeah. What's the, what will I tell him the emergency is? I'm sure if you just tell him there's a family emergency, he'll let you take your test next week. I had the toughest professor on, just about on campus teaching music history, Dr. Nicolosi. I, I knew I was dead and that afternoon, went to see him and I said, I have a family emergency. I'll be glad to take the test right now, but my mother has asked for me to be home in Indiana, and I've got to leave. And he said, you just take the test next week and don't worry about it. If this is for your mother and it's a family emergency, then you need to go. I was sure that that man did not have a heart up until that point but I became convinced that maybe he was okay. Got in my car, drove through the night. You know, I was in shock. The whole thing, when I got in the car, 
I mean, I was so relieved when I got there to see all my brothers were okay because I knew something had happened to somebody and she just wasn't telling me. I mean, I was pretty sure I was coming up there for a funeral of some kind. What a relief it was to find out that wasn't the case. And yet there was still that burning question that even Sparky's siblings were asking. Why are you home? I said, I don't know. Mama wants me home, what's going on? She said, well, Daddy, the last two nights, Daddy slept in the barn. What is going on? We don't know. So we had this big breakfast. My mother had this huge plate of bacon and eggs and ham, and she said, here, take this out to the barn for your father. And I said, why is he sleeping out in the barn? Are you two getting divorced? She said, we're Catholic. We don't get divorced. Take this out to your father. I said, okay, I'm headed out to the barn. Hey, Daddy, he said, I thought you might be coming home. I said, what's going on? He said, I'm sure your mother will tell you when she's ready for you to know. Little did Sparky know that he wasn't just going to find out what was going on, but also the depths of his mother's convictions and the lengths that she would go to in order to follow through with them. So after breakfast and clean up, everybody's out doing their chores and mother said, come with me, we've got to go somewhere. We got in the car. I said, please tell me what's going on. She said, your father's had an affair with this young lady and he's gotten her pregnant. I need to talk her into giving us this baby so I can raise it right. So get in the car, let's go. She said, I just don't want you to say anything. So we drove to this lady's house, young lady, it was a small town, I knew her. And uh, we got to her house, her apartment, and she answered the door, she said, what do you want? My mother said, I'm Mary Sparks. You've been having an affair with my husband. I understand you're pregnant. She said, yes, I am. And I want to talk to you, please. May we come in? She said, this is my son, Sparky. She said, I know him. I said, well, we went in, we sat down. And she said, so here's the deal. She said, I will pay for all your expenses. She said, I'll give you $3,000 today. When the child is born, I'll give you $5,000. When the child is born and you sign the paper for us to adopt him. She said, how do you know it's gonna be a boy? And she said, we're Sparks's. That's all we have. She said, I'll raise him right. If you ever wanna be in his life, you can be. And she said, I know you probably don't feel too good about what you've done, but I'm not worried about that. She said, that's for God to decide, judge, not me. She said, will you pay my rent? She said, yes, I'll pay all your expenses. I'll pay your hospital bills, I'll pay everything. And when the child is born and we adopt, and I know you're okay, then it ends, and we will take the child to raise, and I will raise it as my my own child. 
She said, all right. She said, have you got the money now? She said, of course, I've got it right here in my purse. And I said, I've got the paperwork. We signed it. We went by the attorney's office, had him notarize it. That's the way my brother Jake came into the world. He knew he was adopted from day one. All my brothers did. But we also knew that we would treat him just like any other brother. And we did. Once again, the Sparks family, in the face of infidelity, was given a gift and due to their faith, took a child in and accepted it without question as their own. Years later, I went to play golf with my dad. I said, I gotta ask you, did you and mom resume relations with each other? He said, of course. He said, it took two or three months, but your mother was tough as nails. But she always said that God would judge me. It wasn't her place to judge me. And we were married. I was her husband. She was my wife. That's just the way it was. There was a moment in time that I forgave your mother and years later she forgave me. And thanks to Edie Han for the work there and thanks for Sparky. What a remarkable story and Mary Sparks, what a remarkable woman and great job on the production, Robbie. Just a beautiful job. And by the way, our lives are all messy, but if this is any testimony to what a, a true Christian walk looks like. This is it. And it's forgiveness, folks. And it's hard to do, but it's what obedient people of faith do. And my goodness, in other families, this would have been a divorce and a mess, and who knows what would have happened to that child. And in this family, the child is loved. I'll raise him right, Mary Sparks said to this poor young girl. And by the way, this is a different day. This is a different day. And to do this kind of thing, and to not worry about the social opprobrium, what people were gossiping about or talking about, really, what a, what a remarkable story. And again, share your stories with us, family stories, faith stories, any old kind of story that has this kind of grit and love. It's real, folks, and we only tell real life stories here. No, no daisies and no rainbows. Life's tough. But how you deal with these circumstances, we can learn from stories like these. And the relationship got healed. The wife forgave. He forgave himself, too, because in the end, the guy's got to forgive himself. And, of course, their God, well, forgave both of them. Mary Sparks' story, our Women of True Grit series, here on Our American Story. And we continue here with Our American Stories, and our own Alex Cortez brings us 
this next story. This is the story of three gentlemen who had never met, all separately pursuing their life's passions until one day. Their stories converged around the trial of one of them, Barry West. I, I was born in London just at the end of World War II, and we didn't have, there wasn't a lot of stuff. If you can imagine, London was pretty devastated after the war. So you had to be very practical and pragmatic, and my father certainly was very practical. And I'm very, very lucky he passed that on to me. I remember working with him when my younger sister was just three or four years old, which would have made me about 10 or 12, building her a doll's house and toys because we, they, you just couldn't buy regular toys from the shop. And, and so it wasn't that we were short of money, but there were just, there was nothing to buy. Here's the second person, Reese Cosgrove. You know, I was born in Montreal, so I'm a Canadian. My father was a neurologist, so I was sort of introduced to the hospital at a pretty young age. My father would take me in on rounds to the hospital when he had to go, and I always remember we would always go on Christmas Day, and I'd help deliver presents to the inpatients, and they had this huge mock Santa sleigh filled with presents and you would go around to each of the floors and deliver little presents to all the inpatients. And so I, I sort of think uh, neurosurgery chose me rather than I chose neurosurgery. It just happened. And here's the third person, Maurice Ferret. I've been fortunate enough to be in a family where there was always an importance of doing good in society, doing something good. So my great aunt was a recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom, and she happened to be a nun. So I literally started at the ground level in, in British Telecom. We'd just come through World War II, and I remember growing up, the bad guys were the Germans, and the good guys were the Americans and the Brits, and that's not true. You know, there are many, many really wonderful German people, right? but I did observe that everyone I could talk to, I had something in common and generally liked them. I, I mean, I can count on the fingers of my hands the number of people I've met in close conversations and really detested. So I figured that anything that I could do to help people talk with one another, it's like being a doctor. I think doctors have got a great life. I mean, their calling is great. They're helping other human beings. And there are many other things that, where people can do that. But for me, it was telecommunications. If you can talk to someone, you're probably going to like them. And I was recruited to become the chief technology officer for Nextel. But I ended up rolling out the first 4G network probably in the world. So I came here literally with the intent of staying two or three years. I came on an H-1 visa, and I thought, you know what, I really love this country, I might as well stay here. And I really have had the American dream. I had the good fortune of marrying a beautiful American, and I am an American now, and in fact, 
I've lived in the United States longer than I've ever lived in Canada, so I'm a rightful and dutiful American, but I always say I just came down here to improve the gene pool. I thought that my calling was in medicine, and, but my challenge was as a kid, I was very dyslectic and it was really tough um, to kind of get into medical school and I fought very hard and I ended up going to Boston University. I realized early that I was never going to be a great surgeon and that's what I wanted to be when I went into medical school and I realized that I wanted to have a little more liberty. I wanted to have a little more control of my life and my destiny and I had enough people around me to help me and guide me to be able to take certain risks. So in the early 90s, that's exactly what I did. I, I did something unheard of. I went off and did this fellowship in entrepreneurship instead of doing a residency. And I remember my dean of medicine coming up to me and saying, how does it feel being the first, first student in our medical school at Boston University that's not going into an internship? And I sat there in front of my father and my father kind of looked at me kind of dumbfounded and I said, you know, I, this, is, this is what I want to do. And medicine was supposed to be a vocation. You're not supposed to go off and do other things. And that kind of led me down this path of creating value and doing things that I love around building and innovating around technology and medicine. So it kind of combined two things. And Maurice has built and sold two different medical companies and then became the CEO of one named Insight Tech that has helped this person he didn't know, Barry West. I picked up a cup of coffee and it just shook, I shook like a leaf and the coffee went everywhere and I was 25. Uh, and so that was the first time I really noticed the tremor and it was quite extreme. And then nothing for years. And then slowly but surely, it would come back a bit more. When I first came to the States, I came as the chief technology officer for Nextel. And that was a high profile job involving a, a lot of stress. And I noticed things like when I was on an airplane, this country is really big. If you don't get on an airplane, you're not gonna do business all over the country like we were doing. And I sat by the aisle because I didn't, passing some hot liquid across another passenger, you know, the flight attendants would just assume that you can take what they're offering and without any issue. Well, that isn't the case with someone with essential tremor. If I grab the cup by one hand or even both, there's a good chance I would spill it on my fellow passenger. So I, you know, I would go on a flight across country without having a drink because it was just not worth the risk of getting my fellow passenger scolded. The worst one, every year, I'm on this board of this company, and every year you have the annual shareholder meeting. And about four years ago, I was at a shareholder meeting and my cup just exploded. It was a paper cup, it exploded in my hand. I made it look like I tripped or something and spilt it, but it was literally my hand clenched and crushed the cup and the, and the coffee went everywhere. So that was the last time I had a coffee in public. And Reese Cosgrove is the doctor who helped him 
so that he can. The estimate is somewhere between 10 to 20 million uh, Americans will have a central tremor. The question is, is how many of those are really, is it bad enough for them to consider having anything done? I think that number is a lot smaller, but it's still, uh, it's the most common, it's much more common than Parkinson's disease. And you've been listening to a terrific story about three different men and how they came together living their separate and meaningful lives. And this story is a part of our Opportunity America series, sponsored by the great folks at Coke Industries. Learn more about their incredible work at cokeindustries.com. That's K-O-C-H industries.com. More of this story after these messages. This is our American stories. Hi, this is Robbie, and I'm one of the new producers of Our American Stories. In my short time here, I've been able to help people tell some amazing stories, and you can find them on ouramericannetwork.org. But now it's your turn. I'd like to help you tell your story to our listeners. Just record it and send it over to yourstory@oanetwork.org. That's yourstory@oanetwork.org. Can't wait to hear it. And we continue with Our American Stories and the story of Barry West, who was suffering from terrible tremors. And also the story of Reese Cosgrove and the story of Insitech CEO Maurice Ferre and his effort to start working in the world of entrepreneurship and medical innovation. Now let's return to Dr. Cosgrove and treating a condition that's known as essential tremor. So... The first-line treatment is to take a medication, typically like Inderol. That's a beta blocker. But about 30 to 40% of people, they just don't get the good effect from the medication. So the second one we would try is a drug called Mysoline, different mechanism of action, and that also works pretty well. But again, a certain percentage of people just won't see any benefit from it. Some people see benefit, but they have to go to high enough doses that they become sleepy or intolerant of the side effects. So generally, if a medicine can control the tremor, however, it's the right way to go. The side effects from the drugs for me was just um, very, very difficult. One of the drugs made me so aggressive. They're affecting your brain and your your personality is part of the byproduct of that. I mean, I, not to the point where I was violent or, or nasty or anything like that. I would just be snappy, you know. It, it, and it's a weird feeling when you're, you're like in a cloud. That's the best way I can describe it. So the morning is foggy. My brain is not sharp. I play solitaire a lot to make sure that my memory and mind functions are working well and 
my game level when I was on the drugs went down. Now that might sound, you know, that's not terrible, but you know, all of these things add up. Um, they, it just becomes, again, it's part of your life and you, and you get on with it. A common way that folks with essential tremor get on with it is self-medication through alcohol. The problem obviously is that alcohol works very well, but you've got to, as soon as the alcohol level drops, uh, the tremor starts coming back. So then you take another drink. So you sort of have to be drinking fairly continuously in small amounts, but over time, your nervous system and your body develops a tolerance to it, so you need a slightly higher dose to get the same benefit. And if you do this over years, you will certainly develop a tolerance and need more and more alcohol to suppress the tremor until you're drinking pretty constantly. So I've had a, a couple of patients who really were, frankly, alcoholic. Literally, two cocktails and the tremor's gone. And so, you know, for, for my board dinners, for instance, I would make sure that I had a scotch or gin and tonic or something before I met anybody, so that I'm already halfway there, and then you have a drink at the beginning. And uh, so you get into a couple of drinks, and then you're at dinner, and there's more drinks. And before you know it, not, not with the board, I, I've learned to contain contain my drinking by and large to two to three drinks uh, but sometimes you just go beyond it you, you the reason that you're not shaking and it's because you've lost your inhibitions and there were occasions where and more of them than I like to admit where I would go to dinner with some friends and go beyond the point where you're not really in control and uh, a couple of occasions I've stumbled and fell um, it really can become a problem uh, it, it wasn't with me I don't think it was having said that you know the embarrassment for Julie when I was clearly drunk uh, must have been awful for her uh, and not something I'd be proud of either here's Maurice on their solution to be proud of Insight Tech developed the first incisionless surgery applications using MR-guided focused ultrasound. Yeah, the way the way that I would describe our technology is that is it's incisionless. So you know, so what does that mean, incisionless? So what we do is we use energy, and we use a certain wavelength, and it's called ultrasound. Now, most people think of ultrasound as you know, looking at babies. But actually, when you converge over a thousand elements or beams of ultrasound into one point, it allows you to do something remarkable with that energy. It allows you to heat up or lesion the tissue. So think of it as a magnifying glass and what happens is if you put your hand on a magnifying glass like close to the to the glass you don't burn but if you go right to that tip it'll burn the leaf and that's the exact analogy of what we do 
in the body, specifically in the brain, and we're able to create these lesions. And that's what's required in treating these patients with movement disorders like essential tremor. And so in years past, we would do it with a radiofrequency coagulation of it by placing a probe down there and heating it up and coagulating the tissue. But that required a hole in the head and putting a rigid probe down through the skull and then generating heat at the tip of this probe to cause a lesion. A procedure called deep brain stimulation. Focused ultrasound can do exactly the same thing without having to make an incision in the scalp, a hole in the skull, or any trajectory through the brain. I just didn't really want deep brain stimulation. I would have considered it if my tremor had gotten worse, but this is so nice to have this option of focused ultrasound where it's an outpatient procedure. You go in over three days. The first day is just to make sure that you're in good physical condition. The second day when you have the procedure, you go in, they shave your head, they clamp your head to this frame. You spend basically half a day in and out of an MRI machine. I know some people are claustrophobic. I wasn't sure whether I was or not, but um, I didn't want to tell Dr. Co Cosgrove that because I wanted to have the procedure. Anyway, I found it was not difficult at all. And then the following day you go back for a checkup and, and that's it. It's done. It's just, it's a miracle. It really is. Because you, you come out, the effect is instant. It's interesting. My physician's assistant and my secretary and the people around, they call it, you know, this is just happy surgery. Most of our patients are older, much older. And my PA likes to say, this is the operation that makes grown men cry. Because older men, grown men and maybe grown women, were a little more cynical uh, about the world and they almost don't believe that it's possible. It sounds a little too good to be true. Well, the first thing I did after the procedure, we went to the Brigham and Women's restaurant and I had soup. I hadn't had soup for 20 years because there was just no way with tremor that I could hold a soup spoon. And I, you know, I refused to drink soup out of the straw. So I went to the, their uh, restaurant and I had a bowl of soup. And that night, Julie and I, we went out and we, we just celebrated. It was just amazing. It's just absolutely life-changing. So when we do the procedure and we stop the tremor, that's one thing. There's often a, a real, a, the first understanding that, that, wow, this is amazing. It's the next day when they realize that it hasn't faded and gone away, that, that they can write their name for the first time in 10 years, or they can hold a champagne flute for the first time, or hold a, just a glass, a cup of coffee in the morning for the first time in many years that they become somewhat emotional about it. And it's not uncommon that a grown man or a grown woman will have a little tear in their eye, in, uh, just in gratitude. And, uh, and I think the, um, I mean, there's nothing better than that. <laughs> These types of projects that are 
transforming. You know, people, people think it's like an overnight success. It happens just like that. Well, no, it, it doesn't. It, it took us seven and a half years to do the first 1,000 cases. It took us 10 months to do the next 1,000 cases. And it's going to take us five months to do the next 1,000 cases. So this is growing exponentially. We've been able across the board now to impact close to 20,000 lives. But our goal is not to get to 20,000. Our goal is to get to 200 million and have a real impact and really transforming the way that we treat certain diseases. Coke Industries, well, they're helping Maurice Foray get there. Their Coke Disruptive Technologies is the lead investor of Incitex, providing $150 million worth of financial capital and priceless human capital to help expand their commercial and manufacturing capabilities and cut through regulatory red tape so more patients can get their innovative treatment and one that's about one quarter of the cost of invasive surgery. This story, by the way, is part of our Opportunity America series sponsored by Coke Industries. Learn more about their incredible work at cokeindustries.com. That's K-O-C-H. This is Our American Stories, the story of Barry West, Dr. Reese Cosgrove, and Maurice Foray. All of those stories converging here on Our American Stories.